What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Nagara. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's funny, and I'll tell you why. I'm gonna... That's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Look. All right, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And today we're going to be talking about a really fascinating case. Um, I guess the most prolific serial killer, certainly in modern history, maybe ever. And his name is The Beast. Uh, how, how do you pronounce it? I, I don't want to get it wrong. Yeah, it's not he, had, he had a number of, of, of names, and some of his he gave himself. This guy was a real egomaniac. Uh, so my best here, which translates to the beast, is also known as Enkribilin, uh, which means goofy, like the, the animated character from Walt Disney. He was also referred to as a Kura, which is a priest because of all the different outfits he would wear to lure children away from the area they were in. Uh, so this guy was a real character, so yeah. Yeah, uh, Luis Garavito, I guess. And, yeah, Goofy, I didn't understand the Goofy thing. I know that he's he's pretty Goofy looking, but he's, um, I guess he's kind of affable in a way. Uh, nearsighted, anyway. Yeah, no, this guy was a character. I mean, his, his looks aside, yeah, he, he looked pretty like a goofy guy. I mean, he wasn't, he didn't look like a killer or anything, but I mean, he has over 400 kills. is astonishing. And we'll get into why he was able to do this. In modern times, it has everything to do with what was going on in Colombia. And we didn't mention it, but this guy, is, he's not an American serial killer. He's a Colombian serial killer from the country of Colombia, which, if some of you don't know, uh, just like Colombiano, and um, this is uh, obviously a big state on the country's um, you know, ledgers of who they have as Colombian, because this guy was a real piece of garbage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't know hardly anything about the country of Colombia. When I think of it, I'm ashamed to say I, I kind of think of of like the drug game and the violence that comes with that. Uh, but I, I really don't know much about the culture, so I, I hopefully I can glean a little bit from you. Real quick, uh, Santino in Bethlehem, PA, wants to know, uh, he says, I'm house shopping. One of the big um, deal breakers is Central Air. Jesus. Um, and so he, he wants to know, I'm assuming there's no air conditioning in San Quentin, but he wants to know, um, is that 
Is that a pain in the ass, basically? Yeah, well, it used to be. I mean, before, I think, 2005, we basically just, you know, heat-stroked ourselves to death in this place because it's an oven in, in the summertime. But they have allowed us to have fans in the last few years, so that helps a lot. But yeah, it's hot. I mean, yeah, it's not a nice thing to be sitting in a 4 by 9 basically, oven cooking. And I'm sure a lot of guys are not too sympathetic for a bunch of killers being cooking, that they're cooking themselves in a cell. But, yeah, it's pretty miserable. But, look, you get past it, right? That's what I would always tell people. Look, man, if um, you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Hmm. So there it is in a nutshell. All right. Uh, so don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and Tell a friend about the show. That really helps uh, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I don't know what their logarithm is, but that is what makes a big difference for us. Anyway, on to the show. So I don't know if a lot of people have heard of this guy, uh, Luis Garvito, but he has had killed an absolutely horrifying number of young boys um the stats vary and a lot of these numbers you know are are a little iffy you get a little bit different figures but and i'm sure some of that has to do with the the local governments and and all that but anyway from what i understand he's killed around 189 young boys and perhaps up to 400 or who knows the number could be something even even more unfathomable and uh i you know for all, all the attention we give to, to certain serial killers th- this guy is actually number one yeah absolutely this guy is he is the well there there is obviously harold shipman and he killed more people but it was it's, it's a little different he, he was a medical person and killed in a different way but this guy's numbers are they're, they're, they're crazy as you said anywhere between 189 and 400 he admitted and confessed to 47 and then later on confessed another 25 but this guy what we have to always remember about this guy is everything that's known about this guy we know because he said it from the very beginning he has basically controlled the narrative on himself and he's not a dumb guy. He's a predator. But he's assisted throughout his career of killing between 1992 and about 1999. Because of what's happening in the country, there's civil war going on in Colombia. Is, but in terms of government, it's one of the most corrupt governments there are. Everybody thinks of Colombia and always they think of the drug cartels, which, yeah, there's a lot of killing behind that. Behind that. And of course, we think of, you know, coffee and Juan Valdez and, and all these stereotypes. It, it, you know, it's a country that has 32 departments, which are like states. Um, each state has a, a governing body. It's different from the other one which is with the head of a mayor. It is just the civil unrest in entire, entire country. And the poverty level is extremely high. And you have thousands, we're talking in excess, well, I'd even say millions of children that are orphaned, homeless, uh, poor, and they're on the streets 
Um, as I said, I'm from Colombia, and um, the last time I was there was 1981. And as I was coming home from Barranquilla, Colombia, to Bogotá, there's a, there's a layover, so you stop and you're in the airport. And in this airport, you know, I put down a, a milk cart, and I just, you know, finished drinking. And out of nowhere, a child of maybe two and a half years old pops up with a specially made spoon, tilts the carton over, and then drinks the milk. And it just disappears again. It's just incredible, the amount of poverty in this country. So you were there when you describing that visit. That was when this guy was active, and that was kind of a post-Civil War. Like, right now, Colombia has five times the murder rate of the United States, and the United States has a fairly high murder rate. Um, but back then, it was completely off the charts. I mean, did you witness, like, was, was that palpable just from walking around or, or no? Well, yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm from the, the costa, what, what they consider just a costeño. So they Barranquilla, Colombia, and that's where Santa Marta is. My mom is from Santa Marta, my father's from Barranquilla. And I spent most of my time in both Barranquilla and Santa Marta. But I've been in Bucaramanga, Bogota, Cartagena, Medellin, and all the the, um, the different uh, departments there, Antioquia. And, yeah, I mean, it's really weird. You know, my father, would, when I was younger, would, we'd walk down the street at maybe 9, 10 o'clock at night, and it's, it's dark. And he would tell me not to walk on the sidewalks. We would walk in the middle of the street because there are trees on the sides. And usually mothers and rapists and, you know, guys that are doing bad deeds are usually hiding in the trees. And they will drop down on you and rob you or kill you and then leave. And because there are so many, you know, impoverished people in this country they're basically just kicked to the side. There's no police report. Um, none of these people have dental records. It's, it, we're living in a modern time in the 80s and 90s in Colombia, but stuff is going on there that's happening in the 1920s in the United States. And because this guy's victims were all children between the ages of 6 and about 16, this was the perfect victim because no one reported these kids missing because there were so many of them. There's even a um, there's a term for these children that they walk, they're always on the streets, and the term is Los Gavinas. And there's these, they're little boys and girls that are orphaned. There's no family, no mother, no father. And from the age of two on, they're on the streets, just making it any way they can. So, of course, when they go missing, who's going to report them? Another four year old? Another five year old? So it's, it's a very sad situation, but this guy. Um, in Cura de Bestia, this is where he found his niche, and these are his victims. Yeah, I don't know if you want to say that he got lucky, uh, but he certainly exploited this problem. Um, so I want to talk about his early life, and I don't know what to believe of this, you know, where it's coming from. There's really not a lot of information on this guy, and I don't know how much of it is apocryphal. Um, but it is frightening. Would you mind real quick, and I, I don't know if this is too hard to, uh, of a thing to really do, 
but is it possible to real quickly sum up like why the country was war torn? And I know that could be like a 10 episode thing, but what, what is the basic, uh, you know, conflict that was going on there at the time? Well, yeah, there, it's, there's different stories and, you know, historians will tell one story that people say another story. It's just, it's about corrupt governments. You have, as I said, 32 departments in Colombia. Each one had a different uh, governing body. And there was, you know, the national, there was the communist, there was uh, the FARC, there was the, all these different people were trying to basically rule and chase the money. That's what this came down to. And it got even crazier when all the cartels began to, uh, you know, breed this, this culture of, of cocaine and drugs. And then, of course, you mentioned Pablo Escobar and what he did. But, you know, the United States in this as well. I mean, you know, we can have all these conspiracy theories about the CIA getting involved, but the truth is, these the United States got involved in funding some of these governmental bodies that had militias and, and military para, uh, para people. And it was just from one province to the next. They were fighting each other. The different uh, governments wanted uh, a piece of the pie. You know, in Colombia, it was always a joke where you would hear on the radio comes on and you hear, uh, you know, the F2, which is kind of the FBI, has just pulled over a freight uh, cargo ship that has 16 tons of cocaine. And then it pauses but it got away. <laughs> yeah, it got away because they stopped, they paid the, the, the local police department that pulled them over, and then they went on their way. So this is the reason why all this complete civil unrest, uh, the people are basically used as pawns, and the cartels are behind it. But I, I should mention that because this guy basically... You know, he puts out his own narrative out there. We don't know what's true about this guy. And and some of the things to say about this guy, I know they're untrue. And I, and I will tell you why. Because there's inconsistencies in what he says and what he says happened to him. Now, was there abuse going on in Colombia with children? Obviously. But this guy, he almost tries to make an excuse as to why he does what he does. And... He puts out the narrative that he did it to get even with society for what they did to him. And that has that plays with the whole, you know, civil war that was going on there. So he's almost like saying, Look, I'm a bad guy, but the governments are worse. And that's classic, right? In a movie you have a bad guy, but there's somebody worse than him, so you kind of root for the bad guy. So that's what he does. He tries to get sympathy from the people that are listening to his story. But I think it's a crack of bull. Yeah, he's real shifty. He, if you were to speak to him in person, he's very calm, disarming, um, almost gentle, I guess, uh, which is not all that atypical. You know, a lot of these serial killers have that just creepy vibe. Uh, but he'll kind of jump around from topic to topic. You know, I don't know how crazy he is. I think he's, he definitely has some mental illness, but it's, I, I just don't know, you know, 
what to believe of it <laughs> about about anything that he says. So if you listen to his official narrative about himself, it, it's maybe the most heinous upbringing that we've seen among any of these guys, and they all have pretty horrible upbringings. Um, you know, his mother's a prostitute. His father is a child molester, drunk, you know, abusive, obviously, you know, beats and rapes his mom. Um, Garvita says that his father molested him, but beyond that, he says his father was so, so much of a psychopath that he would not allow, essentially he would not allow Garavito to, to see girls or to essentially be a heterosexual. So in this guy's narrative, his father sort of blatantly, purposefully kind of turned him homosexual. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's really uh, a thing. Yeah, no, I don't believe that, and I'll tell you why. Okay, so in the 1960s, when this guy was in his, you know, a child, his, you know, between the age of three and 11, look, Colombia is an extremely macho um, place where guys are measured as to how many women they have or, you know, how many children they father. So that his mother is supposed to be a prostitute, and that may be true. But Gavarito immediately says, according to him, that he was made to watch his mother have sex with clients. And then the clients were allowed to molest and rape him. And when he then, again, he been the narrative is that he attempted to defend his mother, and then his father cut him to a tree, beat him, and that they would allow, again, the men that were having sex with his mother molest him. Okay. So let's purely look at this for what it is. And it's a it's bull. First of all, men who pay women, prostitutes, sex workers to have sex, are not interested in children because they're there to obviously have sex with a woman. And most men that are interested in women are not interested in little boys. There, there may be a rare case that there is. That makes no sense. That his father pushed him into being homosexual, I don't believe that. I believe that Cabarito was in fact gay. And his crimes from what he did to the children tend to show a classic psychological profile for someone who hates his own sexuality. So I don't believe any of that stuff that his father, his father was probably harder than probably be him. I, I have no doubt that happens because it, in those type of countries, the father usually rules the household with an iron fist, and I have some experience with that. But it's really interesting because from all the accounts, you know, he paints a picture of himself that is one of victimization from the very beginning and excuses what he does. Well, he kind of throws himself off by saying, by then, it's, it's obvious he molests his, his younger brothers. And, he, and there, right there, that makes no sense. If his mother and his father are molesting him and having other people molest him, then why would his mother kick him out of the home 
for attempting to rape a boy or molesting his own siblings. You see, that makes no sense, uh, Matt. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, it makes none. And, and, and of course, it, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh uh, no, I, I. It would also make sense if his dad beat him. I'm not saying it's necessarily the way to go, but yeah, if you're molesting your younger brothers and killing animals and being a, you know, a, a an omen, then yeah, like that that might happen. Yeah, and of course, if his parents are allowing this stuff to happen as he claims that you know he's made to watch his mother have sex and his father rapes him and his father's friends come and rape him and stuff, well, that means that their parents are sick and they're perverts. So why would they kick him out? They would praise him because he's just like they are. They're bringing up what they want. So that makes absolutely no sense to me. That's why I think it's all made up by him. That he was from the very beginning um, gay, yes. Uh, in that country, gay was, well, if you've seen any kind of American movies in the 50s and 60s and how, you know, people in the LGBTQ community were looked upon, in Colombia, it was a thousand times worse. Because in those, in those type of countries, Colombia, Ecuador, Venezuela, and those South American countries, you know, as I said, machismo is, is measured by your prowess of women, meaning you know, that you're the, the Latin lover, you, you have that, that image. So that he is something different from the beginning. And this is no fault of his, I, I've explained before this, that, look, you really can't, uh, you know, uh, change who you are. But he is a killer from the beginning. I mean, you can see, as I said, you know, guys do bad things, but they don't graduate to being serial killers unless there's something inside them born there that begins to really take over their life. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. So, you know, this guy leaves home and then starts getting odd jobs, you know, grocery stores, coffee plantations. And then you can start telling that here his mental state isn't as well, stable as you would want. He begins to claim, and here it is. This is this is a very good uh, look into this guy's profile. He claims to have had a child with a woman, but then admits he's never had sex with her. See, right there he begins to show this almost like a prowess as a ladies' man in a way. He also lives with women. He has these supposed relationships with women, but admittedly they state that they never had sex with him. So it's, it's, it's an image that he's involved in. He likes the image that he is normal when he really is not. Yeah, so he he leaves home, this agricultural small town. You know, I, I'm picturing he's kind of the Colombian version of uh, of a redneck or something. And I, I don't mean that. Pee-wee Herman. <laughs> yeah, he's got that going yeah. on. He immediately, he, he's... He holds down jobs, like kind of menial jobs, but, you know, respectable jobs, working at stores and things like that. Um, and he kind of travels around Colombia. He becomes an alcoholic right away. That That's kind of a big thing with him. He, he apparently drinks really cheap brandy or schnapps, which is honestly maybe a sign of self-loathing. Um, and then he uh, he he lures these 
street kids into the woods um, you know, promising them maybe a job that pays uh, some some cash, or just some some food or some sweets or whatever. And you understand why these kids would go along with this because they're they're pretty desperate. You know, they're in need for things. And he does the most unspeakable things possible to them, and he does it over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, he does, and um, it's around this time, it's the late 70s now, that he's beginning to show these mental issues. He's depressed, he's paranoid, he says he's hearing voices, um, he attempts suicide on at least one occasion, and for the next five to seven years, he's in and out of mental institutions. Um, but, as you said, he is now molesting children at least one to two a month. He's molesting them. And when he gets out of his little five to seven year uh, kind of getting out of mental institutes, he then escalates. He begins to torture kids at an alarming rate, by the way. Um, he states that inflicting pain is what gets, gets him off. The more pain, the better the climax. He's also, I mean, God, I don't know what more you can find with this guy. He's obsessed with Adolf Hitler. He reads his biography, and he finds this guy to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. Uh, he's also visiting palm readers, and he says that he worships the devil now. And it, it just goes from the Adolf Hitler thing to worshiping the devil to his first kill in 1992. It's October the 2nd, and a small boy named Juan Carlos, he lures him with the offer of money, as you stated before, and the little boy that is later found with his throat cut, he's tortured, his genitalia is cut off, and look, this is an act of hatred, and I, I, I said this before, and I'm going to repeat it, he really loathes boys, their sex, and what it represents to him. He is homosexual, and he resents uh, the attraction that he has to boys. He's conflicted. Everybody tells him it's wrong to be that way, and he can't stop himself from feeling this way, and he hates it. So by killing and torturing the boys, he kind of kills that object within himself that he hates the most. And, you know, this is demonstrated because further, he increases the violence and torture and the murder over the next eight years. This guy's a classic case for what we hear, you know, how these doctors talk about self-loathing, you know, he actually manifests in his actions. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, another kind of armchair theory here is, you know, if he was beaten by his father, he's now maybe identifying with that aggression. You know, he's he was dominated and now he's able to dominate essentially the only people he could because he's a little goofy guy. Um, and yeah, no, I think you're, you're completely right. But look at his victims. His preference or his victim of choice are small children, boys. He likes them to be light-complected, light eyes. And we have to understand the culture in Colombia. Look, and as racist as it may sound, 
it's the absolute truth. In places like Colombia, the lighter your skin is, the higher your stature is in society. This guy, Gabarito, was a uh, dark-complected, dark-haired, you know, it's a place where there was a huge slave trade in the 1800s in Cartagena, Colombia. It was the biggest slave port in all the Americas at one time. So you have a mixture of different cultures from African to, you know, the native people that look, uh, you know, almost like Indians and uh, the influx of people from Europe. So he was targeting people or boys who were very light complexed. So you could, as I said, become the armchair psychologist here. And maybe he was going after the people of privilege or he saw as privilege. And of course, his kids are on the streets are orphans, so they're not of privilege, but he saw the color of their skin as something more to hate and something that actually put him down because he was dark. So you see how this guy's mind works? I mean, he's a twist in Nicky Ficky. Yeah, and when you see with, that he's torturing these kids and and mutilating and and brutalizing their alive or dead bodies, what I get is an awful lot of anger, severe anger. Like <clears throat> he's looking for retribution through these killings. It's you know when you see overkill in in a crime scene usually that's that's someone that the the um, perpetrator knows that they have a personal grudge against you know and with the things that he's doing i'm picking up that he's really really angry and maybe that's part of the racial thing um or just that he's an angry guy in general but there's definitely anger is motivating some of this right yeah, no, he's actually stabbing the child in the hands, feet, the buttocks as he's raping the child. And in some cases, and it's actually 12 children, he decapitated them as he was having sex with them. And when he finished decapitating and killing the child, he continued to have sex with them. So you can add, add necrophilia to this guy's resume. This guy was, look, whether you could say he was doing it out of anger, this type of anger, this type of, of violence towards a corpse almost is unheard of. It is way beyond normal. And But then again, here, here we are, a guy who, you know, he, like BTK and a lot of these serial killers, they begin to say that uh, there's a force within them that compels them to kill. And he claims to have made a pact with the devil. And he kills in a ritualistic style of satanic worship. Bull. <laughs> this guy's just making stuff up as he goes along. He is, you know, he's trying to push the, the envelope of being possessed because he's almost setting, all this stuff comes about after he's arrested. And he, he's the one controlling the narrative. The truth is he's killing at least a couple children a week. And what he's doing to them is so off the charts that there really is no excuse. Um, I mean, look at his his, his uh, style. He bounds their hands. Um, he he begins to stick razor blades inside the children. He cuts the genitalia and puts it in their mouth as they're still alive. I mean, there's no reason for this. But uh, the murders continue. I mean, they increase as well. 
between 1994 and 1996, there's over a hundred children found in mass graves that this guy put him in. Now, he wasn't the only one killing at that time. The reason I'm saying between 1994 and 1996, because if you recall, Pablo Escobar died or was killed in 1993 or 1992, somewhere in that neighborhood. The reason Pablo Escobar comes to mind is because he is from this area, Bogotá, Medellín. He's up in the region of Colombia. The reason he comes to mind is because he was a, the patron saint of children, Pablo Escobar, the drug lord. And the reason we know this is because, and, and I'll get to it, for his own selfish reasons, he formed all these great institutions of, you know, like orphanages for all these kids in the streets. He knew, like any person in Colombia knows, that these children on the streets that are there because they're homeless and they're without parents, uh, they're there because of civil war, their parents were killed, and they have nowhere to go. So Pablo Escobar got a great idea to put these kids in these orphanages to protect them. By 1994, these orphanages are closing. There's no money. Pablo Escobar's gone. So these kids are back on the streets, and this guy's kill number rises dramatically. But interestingly enough, Pablo Escobar was not a dumb guy. And... You know, he used these orphanages as a breeding ground for his own assassins. If you recall, one of his number one assassins is a guy named the Ghost. And they called him the Ghost for a good reason. He was a Gavin, a kid in the streets. Pablo took him in his orphanages, and he proved to be one of the best killers he ever met. And this is why you see these, these movies with guys on motorcycles, uh, with a guy in the back, and they shoot politicians. That was invented by the ghost. So now that Pablo's dead, of course, La Bestia has no one watching over these kids. And his number increased dramatically. Yes. So he's not even particularly stealthy. It's just that he has so many of these kids to pick from. You know, we'll we'll see later that he does things to where he's pretty easily caught. Um, <clears throat> but he keeps he keeps doing this. You know, he lures the kids uh, off the street, always during the daylight. Apparently, he's scared of the dark. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the goofy is afraid of the dark. Can you believe that? Bestia, the big tough guy is afraid of the dark. <laughs> and just this extreme mutilation, you know, we... we you spoke to some of the details so there's no need to keep going but anything nightmarish is is what he's doing to the kids while they're alive and and then dead and at one point he actually yeah. gets you know he's in this kind of partly secluded undergrowth and he gets into a, he's raping a boy and like a, a younger like 10 year old boy um they get into a physical altercation and he does eventually win, but he almost loses. It was closer than like, if you or I got in a, a fight with a 10 year old, it was closer than that would be. Um, but so a few like kind of close calls, but not really. And he just keeps doing it. Um, 
you know, an interesting thing, I don't know if you read this, but at a certain point, according to him, he goes to Alcoholics Anonymous because uh, he's definitely an alcoholic. We know that to be true. Um, at all the crime scenes, they're finding these cheap bottles of, of brandy. And he, you know, he just drinks all day and he's probably drunk while he's doing this. If you can go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you recognize that you have a problem with alcohol. You're trying to improve yourself. And, and you yeah, don't no, you yeah, don't I, I seek treatment for the fact that you're constantly raping and murdering young children. So clearly you have it in you to recognize that you have a problem. I will bet that this clown didn't go to Alcoholics Alcoholics Anonymous. I think that was probably made up. Um, but yeah, I mean, this does move around a lot. That's one of the reasons they can't catch this guy because, you know, he kills in Ecuador, he kills in Venezuela, he returns to Colombia and that's where things start getting bad is when he returns to Colombia right after, uh, the holidays in 1998, 1999, and he pulls off a stunt that really puts this new task force that's put together in Colombia on his trail. Let me come back. Right. So at this time, uh, hundreds of bodies later, uh, but the Colombian government, uh, the, the federal government uh, recognizes that this is a problem and they are, they are actually finally after this guy, after communicating with some of the different um, smaller states or provinces, and and now they're they're looking for this guy. They want this guy, right? Yeah, they know they know they have a serial killer, but they don't know who he is. They've interviewed a number of people, including him. He's been interviewed a number of times, but he, his demeanor and he gives fake names, so they don't really know who this guy is. But on February the sixth. Two boys, in 1999, two boys are found outside the town of uh, Palmira, Colombia. And they're naked, they're near a hurricane field, and the very next day, another child is found bound, his throat is cut, and this guy got was so intoxicated that he left his glasses there, he left the murder weapon there, um, and his cigarette... Uh, catches fire in the field and he is so drunk that he stumbles and falls into the fire and burns himself severely. So now he's, you know, looking for doctors. He's, he's not good, but this task force who's led by a guy by the name of Aldemar Duran, he is the head detective on this task force. He is now interviewing people and they interview a guy by the name of Pedro Pablo Garcia. He is a child molester, uh, a well-known one, and they arrest him for the murders of all these kids. And, of course, Pablo's innocent of these particular crimes, and they know this because within a few weeks, more murdered boys start popping up in Bogota, Colombia, which is the capital of Colombia, and they're all in Gavarito's M.O. You know, the hands bound, uh, razor blades are found inside the body, the throats are cut, the child is severely raped. And this guy, Duran, he knows he's after a particular killer. In interviewing people, he interviews the girlfriend and the sister of Gavarito, 
and they give him his belongings. And this shocks the detective, and he finds out now that the guy that he's been looking for is Gavarito and not um, Pablo Garcia, who they release. In this, in his luggage or his belongings that he gets from his one of the girls that he women that he was living with and his sister are they include photos of the boys he's killed journals with details of the murders even a tally of the murders newspaper articles the rope that he uses to bind these children and razor blades so they know who the guy is but they really they can't catch him because he's every you know it's very hard to catch a guy who's just who looks like everybody else in that country. Well, he then, um, of course, he can't stop rapidly killing, and he is seen by a 16-year-old boy attempting to rape another child who is 12 years old, and the child begins to scream. That 16-year-old boy begins to throw stones at him, and Gavarito responds by chasing the 16-year-old boy down and stabbing him. But by doing that, the, the child, the 12-year-old child is released, and the 16-year-old boy also runs away to escape, and they're able to call the police department. And they identify Garrito. Crazy enough, this guy, while they're in the squad car, and they're describing what's happened to them, they see who? A Goofy. He's walking down the street like nothing's happened. And when they pull him over and they identify him, he tells him that he's somebody. He had a different name. It's not him. He's very calm, very cool. And they almost release him till the squad car guys call the main detective. They say, hold him. Once they got him in custody, everything falls apart. I don't know, but I think this may have been an error because he essentially gives a, a false identity like like how you would give a fake driver's license number to a cop if he got pulled over. That's what he does, but he gives the identity of someone who's really well-known in the community. He's like a local politician. So I'm wondering if, you know, he, he maybe could have gotten away with it a little further if he had given the identity of an anonymous person. You know what I mean? Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, he made the mistake of giving a politician's name, and they're like, no, you don't even look like that cat. <laughs> so once he's in custody, of course, his story is, you know, it falls apart. And the big piece of evidence against this clown is DNA found at these crime scenes that match his. And then once they tell him they've matched the DNA, um, you know, he, he admits to the murders. Um, he admits at first to uh, the killing of over 147 boys. And then in 2003, he confesses to 25 more murders, including five adults who he killed, not to have sex, but because they could have identified him. Including, he gives up the names of a 14-year-old boy named Abel Gustavo Velez and a 12-year-old named Jimmy um, and they're both from Venezuela. So there is no trial. This guy, is, they immediately go to sentencing. But this is kind of a, where it gets really messed up because this guy knows the system. So they give him a, over a thousand years for all these murders and everything he's committed in Colombia. 
and um, but he knows that after 40 years, he's eligible for parole. The reason that he steps forward in 2003 and confesses to more murders is because it counts as credits for good behavior in Colombia. And then it reduces his sentence to be eligible for parole after 22 years. And guess what, Matt? Guess when that time is up? Next year. It's freaking next year. This guy kills between 300 and 400 children. And after 21 or 22 years, he is eligible for parole. And there's a very good chance this clown's going to get out. Well, I will say this. Colombia has changed in the last few years. It's, you know, with the internet, with all the stuff that they have, they'll know what this guy looks like. And believe me when I tell you, there'll be people waiting for him to get out to do exactly what he did to all those kids and bury him in an our grave somewhere. Right. He's never uh, mixed with the prison population in Colombia. I don't know what the conditions are like there, but um, obviously he would be killed pretty much immediately for good reason. Uh, so he spends his time in the medical ward, and what he does there is he makes jewelry and handcuffs. I mean, could you get any more wow. creepy and frightening than that? So, um, so you're saying that when he is released from prison, it, it's he probably will be killed, or I mean, what if he just goes? Yeah, if, if this was 1974, 1975, he could disappear. I mean. You know, if he could go to a different country, they would know who he is. A lot of these guys look alike. I mean, I mean, not to put say all Hispanics from Colombia look alike, but I mean, like dark complected, dark eyes, dark hair, about five foot seven, five foot eight, about one hundred and forty pounds. There's a lot of guys that look at the description, but today with everybody carrying a freaking camera on them and access to the internet, once this guy gets up, the reason you go be an uproar in, in South America, and every person's gonna know what this guy looks like if they see him. It's going to be like Richard Ramirez in Los Angeles when they found who the Matador is, and they just hunt his ass down, and you know they beat the crap out of him, and he, well, for lack of a better name or term, he just bitches up. That's what's going to happen to this guy. However, I believe that this guy, if they catch him, they're, they're just not going to kill him. They're going to torture this guy. Well, he deserves it. I mean, think about it. To me, at least in my book, there's nothing worse than a person that kills children or harms a child. And... If they um, get a hold of this guy, I'm sure that the prison officials there in Colombia who are freaking corrupt as hell, they're going to tell the people when he's being released so they can be waiting on him. Isn't that what you would you do? I mean, seriously. Yeah, we can't just have him walking around. He wants to, uh, in interviews, he says he wants to become a priest and he wants to work with children's what? charities. He wants to he wants to help children. Get and and work with disadvantaged children, we cannot have that. I don't know if he's if he's dumb and telegraphing what he's trying to do or if he just doesn't care. He wants to associate with children. Look, we know the track record of the priesthood. I'm sorry, it's not good. Uh, we can't have that. So, yeah, I, I hope that he is killed if he gets out. Uh, so what well, is hey, it? Well, let's look at the bigger... You know, I'm sorry, but look at the bigger picture here. You know, one of his get-ups to lure kids away from the streets and to secluded areas was to dress up like a priest. That's why they called him a cura. He put on these, these priest 
you know, outfits, and he'd go hunt children. Now, about disadvantaged children? What more disadvantaged can you, you know, think of than these homeless, poverty-sticking children on the streets of Colombia? But look, this is even a greater insight. There was a 16-year-old boy, a cripple, that he also raped and killed. I mean, seriously. This guy, I mean, look, I don't know if he's that stupid or he believes someone's going to actually, you know, be fooled by this particular thing. I mean, if anything, you should say, I'm going to go help animals in the rainforest or something. But to say, I want to work with kids when that's his thing, no. Yeah, he's advertising that he's going to continue reoffending. Uh, I want to know, I don't know that you have the answer. You, you don't have the answer for everything Colombian, just like I don't for why certain things are messed up in America. But what is it culturally or governmentally? Like what happened in their system that there's this glitch or, or that this guy can only do 22 years? I mean, how did that become part of their system? It seems like it should have been corrected a long time ago. Well, I don't think it's about correcting. They've never had a guy like this run around. I mean, they never expected this kind of stuff, but the law there is pretty straight from what I understand. The, the law states that no matter how much time they give you, that after 40 years, they don't keep you any longer than that. But because of the good behavior and the that he helped authorities with other bodies that they found, which were attributed to him, that he's able to get out because of his time is reduced. I mean, well, come on, let, let's look at the bigger picture here. Sammy the Bull Gravano admitted to killing 19 mobsters or whatever you want to call it, okay? I mean, you can't tie or compare Sammy the Bull Gravano with a child molester. I'm not trying to do that. It's just that you have a guy who killed, obviously, at least 19 people. I'm willing to bet that Sammy's numbers are about 50 to 60 people he killed easily. But he's on the street. Hell, he runs a freaking podcast about the mob. So, and he's very well off. He's, uh, you know, when he got out of prison, he was in New Mexico or Arizona. He was running another freaking ecstasy lab and all the stuff he did. When you help the authorities, they help you. So how is it fair that a guy that has, let's say, you know, 10 robberies gets 500 years in prison, federal prison, never gets out, but the guy has 19 murders, he does a few years and gets out. Right. Yeah, so I, I see what you're saying. Like, if the system is designed around, like, one cartel guy, you know, murders a rival cartel guy, I could see why that would be, you know, a 20-year sentence. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good thing or anything, but... Uh, you have 60 seconds remaining. You're just saying that up until this guy, they didn't they didn't really know that people like this existed. So it's not built for someone like this. Right. But, but there's been other cases. Look, um, there was a, a, a general in Colombia and I, his name is not important, but he confirmed that he killed 1800 people, murdered them, children, women, men. Thank you for using global tail link. Now, as I was saying, there was a, an official, a general in Colombia, and he wasn't a real general from the government-based army or navy or whatever you want to call it. He was one of the militia guys, one of those smart guys, nationalist guys, you know, guerrilla guys. He killed 1,800 people. 
You know how much time you get, Matt? You got eight years. Eight years, and the government now pays for a bodyguard for him in a nice apartment in Colombia, get a chauffeur. Look, the country's got some jacked-up laws based on crooked-ass uh, politicians. It, it's just one of the most corrupt governments in the freaking world. The only people that gain uh, any kind of ascension over there are the rich. If you're poor, it doesn't matter. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but this guy, uh, Garavito, did what he did because of the civil unrest and everything that happened in Colombia in that time period. Those children, even today, are still on those streets. They're still being murdered. And um, as you mentioned, there are, uh, Colombia still, the murder rate is five times that of the United States. It's the highest murder rate in the world. So that can probably give you a good idea of the type of violence that happens in Colombia. So Garvita sitting in prison, making jewelry. He in handcuffs, uh, which I think we know what he plans to do with those. He absolutely. If you watch an interview with him, he's he obviously I think based on the evidence of what he's done, he ha- he has to have some mental issues. But when you watch an interview with him, he doesn't come off as crazy. Um, I think he's average of average intelligence, if not more, you know, he's, he reads, he understands concepts of like popular science books. He knows what is going on. He's not crazy enough that, like you said, I don't think he really thought he was possessed by some demon or anything like that. Um, unfortunately he's had no access to psychological treatment. He's he has had no no mental health services while in prison, which is something that they might want to correct at some point. Well, do we really want him to have those mental health services? Seriously, come on, let's let's be honest here. Let's be politic, politically incorrect, Matt, because you know I love to be politically incorrect. Who gives a damn if this freaking child killer gets mental health services? Look, I got the mental health service that he needs. I have it. It involves a rope and a baseball bat. You know, come on. I mean, look, I don't care how much mental health services this guy gets. I'm going to give him a pill that makes him not hear voices. This guy killed, confirmed, over 179 or 200 children, possibly 400. There is no redemption from that. At least in my book. And if I'm wrong, I don't want to be right. I agree. And so here's here's a story, a little story that I think might sum, sum up this guy and, and what he's about. So he's paranoid that people are going to be putting poison and other things in his drinks. So he'll only accept water uh, from a certain few people that he trusts, whatever. I'm sure people are trying to poison him. And I hope they are, frankly. But uh, he is... Uh... You know what I tell him, right, Matt? <laughs> you know what I tell him, right? Right. I tell him, hey, man, listen. I got good news for you, and I got bad news for you. 
The good news is you're not paranoid. The bad news is people are out to kill you. Right. So he's visited by someone who wrote this account. I believe they're in the mental health field. They just wanted to profile him or whatever. Doesn't matter. Point is, they go to the facility to meet him. There are two cups of coffee that are brought for the interviewer and for Garvito. He believes that someone is trying to poison him. So what does he do? He switches the coffee cups around. He doesn't say, I think someone may have poisoned this. He doesn't throw one of them away. He wants some coffee. Right? So he, he in his mind, I, I don't know if it's just nature, how calculated it was, but he doesn't have a problem with this person that's ostensibly coming to help him being poisoned. Only him. Hey, self-preservation is a Mickey Mickey, right? guys about self-preservation and uh yeah uh you know hopefully someone gets a hold of this guy and uh you know they just maybe clock I, I guess i don't have to tell anyone if they're listening from columbia but you know be aware of this guy uh tell people about it and and you know just be aware that you might be out in one of your cities i'm sure it'll be free to move around the country uh, terrible, terrible thing to think about. But we'll be back next week with another story about the killer that we're profiling. This one leaves me with a, a little bit nauseous. It, it, it really does. I, I gotta be honest. Oh, yeah. Oh, this guy was bad. I mean, this guy... Yeah, he's a countryman of mine, and uh, just what he did to those kids, just... You know, we should have a disclaimer on this episode that, you know, if you, uh, you know, parental advice or whatever it is to say when, when there's something uh, very grotesque or very something un, uh, unflattering to be said, but this episode definitely covers that. Uh, this guy just left me with my stomach turned. Well, we'll be back next week. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. These are Death Row Diaries. Please be aware of your surroundings and those your life may depend on it. We'll see you next time.